Well, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we, um, we thank you. Thank you for being here with us tonight. And Dad, I'm just asking that you <clears throat> would allow me to leave myself empty, that everything that you've put in, that you want to pour out, that it would be poured out for your name's sake, for your name's sake. I don't deserve to be here. No one knows but you and I why I'm standing here tonight, why Christian and Sheridan and my wife are here today. You and I know, and it's your testimony that you've given to me that I get to share. So, Dad, I'm asking that you would do surgery on our hearts and minds tonight, that you'd work in us. Father, I thank you for your safety that we are safe in this place, and I pray that you cover every word that pours out of my mouth. And I pray that our hearts are open to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. My opening scripture is uh, Psalm 145. I'll read it in the Amplified. I will exalt you, my God, O King, and with gratitude and submissive wonder, I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and lovingly praise you. Yes, with awe-inspired reverence, excuse me, I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. And his greatness is so vast and profound as to be unsearchable, incomprehensible to man. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty and remarkable acts. So the title of my message is Generations, You. Generations, and then there's you. In the context for tonight, we're going to be talking about our family lines, where we come from, what can we learn about the generations that precede us, and what work, say work with me, men, work does the Father have for us towards the furtherance of his kingdom in the generations to come. What work does he have for us? This story is personal to me. I want to try not to take too much time to share this with you um, because I don't want to eat up too much of my message. But um, many of you know I was raised by my mom, and my, uh, my mother fled for her life with me and my, my sister um, when I was six months old. And... Um, I didn't get to learn about my family. Uh, my mom, whenever I would ask questions as a boy, I would say, Mom, I want to understand about my family. Where's my dad? And she would always get this really terrified look on her face, and she would give me these cute little stories, but she would never go into detail. She did tell me one story later on as I got older, probably around 12 years old, to kind of help me understand what was going on. She told me about the first time that she met my grandfather. And it was when my dad brought her home in Denver to meet Uh, uh, he brought my mom home to meet the family. And I guess my dad hadn't been home in some months, and my mom said that my grandfather walked into the house, looked at my dad, my dad looked at him, they didn't say a word, they went into the backyard, and they engaged in the most grotesque hand-to-hand combat that she had ever seen in her entire life. Bare knuckles, beating the mess out of each other. 
As a 12-year-old, I was like, mm, I get it. Don't tell me anything else. <laughs> and so time went on, and fast forward to when I'm at the ripe old age of 46 years old. And the Holy Spirit starts knocking on my heart, telling me, I'm about to reconnect you with the Washington clan. Never heard, them, heard from them, never seen them, right? And I'm like, okay. And so the Holy Spirit starts telling me, get prepared. I'm about to do something. And then all of a sudden, I start getting reached out to by my uncle. Fast forward to this past March, we coordinated a visit. And for the first time, I met someone on the Washington side of the family. Uh, we scheduled a dinner, and all my cousins came that I'd never seen before. It was surreal. And so we get there, and I'm thinking we're going to have burgers and fries and kind of get to know each other, right? My uncle came on a mission. I had never seen this man before, and although I'm a you know, sizable, strapping man, right? I was terrified. There was a boy inside me that was like, I really don't want to be here. My uncle comes up to me, and the first words out of his mouth were, Galen, I'm so glad to meet you. How much do you want to know? And I'm like, uh, and Simone's sitting here looking at me like, what's going on? He came on a mission. He was pregnant with something. And he, he asked me again, Galen, how much do you want to know? And the man in me said, tell me everything. So he starts telling me everything. He tells me the most horrific stories about my grandfather and how my grandfather was on a mission to destroy his family. He even told me that he said that everyone got abused. Everyone got tortured. He said, but Galen, for your dad, he saved a special kind of torture. And he actually passed that on. And your dad took on the role of your grandfather when your grandfather wasn't able to do it anymore. And then he went on to say, you know what, Galen? Um, we had one name for your grandfather and your father. And it was the demon. Pass the fries. More, more fries, please. So admittedly, <clears throat> in that moment, I felt a little bit like Luke Skywalker when he found out that his dad was Darth Vader, right? <laughs> no! That's impossible! <laughs> My face was contorted just like that. So tonight, I want to impress upon us three main thoughts, all of us. That we are pushed by the past, pulled forward by a greater power, and we are part of a larger story. All right, let's get into push by the past. Now, I recognize this topic can be a little hard, so I, that's why I prayed for God to, to cover us and at the same time do surgery on our hearts. I'm also aware that it's very easy to fall into two ditches. One ditch is you give too much power to the context of generational patterns, and so some people can do that. And other people, they don't pay any attention to it at all, and they just discard whatever happened in the past. And I think you'll find that I'll stay out of both of those ditches. Every thought that I share with you tonight is intended to bless you. As I'm looking out and looking at the men's eyes right now, God's writing a story. He's writing a story. Some of us, he wants to set free from some stuff. All of us, he wants to set free from some stuff. Come on now. 
Some of the stuff I'm going to say may feel a little bit offensive, may feel a little bit like a shock to your system, but I, I promise if you stay with me through the message, I'm confident it'll bless you. You ready, man? Let's go. Okay, so we all, obviously we all come from somewhere. But I frequently wonder, do we ever sit back and contemplate what's happened in the past and how does that influence my life? Let me ask you a question. Where do you come from? Where do you come from? Can you see the historical trends of strengths and weaknesses peppered throughout your family line? Can you see trends of temperament and the emotional base, the way that we emote and express ourselves? Can you see a trend? What about morality or immorality? What about good character or lack thereof? What about aptitudes and physicality? I just want you to think about it. Can you see something like a rhythm, a heartbeat, if you just take a minute to reflect on that? Personally, I can. I can see evidence of a war that was going on inside me that I didn't understand. I didn't know what was going on. It was like momentum that was pushing me in a certain direction sometimes, and I didn't know where that was coming from. Again, having never known my father, frequently I behaved just like him. I want to get into a part of my story called the Terrible Target Incident. Target is a store. This is back when Christian and Sheridan were seven and eight years old. Me and my family are taking a drive to Target. And we pull into the lot, and my wife sees a spot. And you know my wife loves to park up in the front. She won't park in the back. And, and then she thanks Jesus every time she gets to that parking spot up front. But as she's about to pull in, another guy swoops around the side, cuts in, makes her slam on the brakes, and she honked. And then she started to drive off. The guy jumps out of the car and begins calling my wife, my bride, my queen, every word under the sun. Before I knew what happened, I was out of the car while I was still rolling. I was charging towards the man, prepared to dismantle him. I can hear my wife screaming, G! That's what she calls me. G! Get back in the car! I can hear Christian and Sheridan, Daddy, what are you doing? Literally, slow motion, I'm running up to this guy, ready to rip him to shreds. And I'm not proud of this. But the momentum was so strong, it got ahead of me. I wasn't aware of what was happening. So I'm charging towards this guy, and I stop, and I see his wife sitting in the car, looking at me like she's looking at death. And in that moment, I freeze, and I can feel two emotions all at once. I can feel the deepest shame and the grace of God at the same time washing over me. I step back. I got in the car, didn't say a word, put my seatbelt on, put my head in my hands. Simone looking at me with side eye. She put the car in drive, and she took off. I'm going to continue the story uh, towards the end of my message. The scriptures clearly affirm the realities of, of generational patterns. Abraham is known as the friend of God and the father of all that believed. His responses and faith to, uh, and obedience to God pleased God, clearly. 
But you can also see when Abraham or Abram went down to Egypt, he started to practice the art of deception. Let's take a look at a few scriptures just to reinforce what I'm trying to show you guys. Many of you guys have read this and studied this, but let's use this. Genesis 12, uh, 12 through 13. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. So say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Fast forward to uh, when Abraham, Abram is now Abraham. In 21 through 2, now Abraham moved on from, the, from there into the region of Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while, he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his, of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. His son, Isaac, repeated the same pattern. Genesis 26, 7, when the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister, because he was afraid to say, she is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill him on account of Rebekah, because she is beautiful. You look at Jacob, his son, Genesis 27, 8 through 19, 18 through 19. He went to his father and said, my father, yes, my son, he said, yes, he answered. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit, sit up and eat some of the game so that you may give me your blessing. On and on and on. Genesis 37, 31, Jacob's children. We all know what they did to Joseph, their brother, they deceived their father, took his ornate robe, slaughtered an animal, dipped it in blood, and then deceived dad and said, and examine it and see what happened. And of course, dad concluded, my son's been torn apart by a wild animal. Here's the interesting thing. When you hear this, and the experts agree on this, one of the best ways to instill longevity in generational patterns is to inflict them on your immediate nuclear family. Now, when you hear that, it's like, of course, that makes sense. But if you think about it, how diabolical is that, that the thing that enables a pattern to continue starts with us? It's also one of the reasons why I personally am so thankful. It took me years to understand why did God you know, reach his hand into time and pluck me out and remove me from that family? He made sure that I had no involvement with the Washington family until I was able to deal with it, because he knew what would have happened to me. Clearly, children pattern their behavior after their parents. To further support this idea, the New York Times article, Clues to Behavior Sought in Family History, uses a, a genogram as a filter, which is basically a tool to examine family health, um, throughout the generations, and it reads, the psychological legacy of past generations is, of course, not a binding influence on the descendants. It seems to diminish as time goes on, and those in later generations come under the sway of many other psychological influences. And the patterns of previous generations matter little to those who have little awareness or have no contact with their forebears. Also, the patterns that are revealed are by no means always negative. And I want you guys to get that. This isn't just about a negative transfer. This is, this is about what gets passed down, one way or the other, and do we have the eyes to see that? 
In Alexander Graham Bell's family tree, for example, there's a three-generation preoccupation with problems in speaking and hearing, which presaged his invention of the telephone. Bell's paternal grandfather was an actor and elocutionist who wrote a classic book on phonetics and invented a cure for stammering. His father and uncle devoted themselves to teaching their father's techniques. Bell's mother and his own wife were both deaf, and Bell himself taught the deaf studying in great detail the mechanics of speech. It was his father's suggestion to Alexander that he develop a talking machine that set him on the path that led eventually to the telephone. The notion that traumas and triumphs of one generation can reverberate through successive ones is, of course, as ancient as the biblical warning that the sins of the father will be visited upon the children for seven generations. Traumas and triumphs reverberate through the generations. The point isn't that you are controlled by these influences, but you are, we are all, influenced. You'll never hear me stand up here and say, or any leader in this church stand up here and say, you're controlled by darkness or you're controlled by patterns. That's not the point. But we are all, to some extent, somehow, influenced. Okay, some of you might be asking, what's the big deal? I get it. Stuff happened in the past, and it might have had a positive or negative impact on me. To be clear, my goal is a little bit to wrestle with you guys and get inside the, the DNA of the man that says, I'm my own man. I'm my own man. I write my own destiny. I'm good. No, you ain't. And you know what? God doesn't work that way. God works through the generations, generationally and individually. It can be disturbing to some to think that our futures can in some ways be heavily influenced by someone or someones other than ourselves. As I said, I am my own man, some would say. But listen, regardless of how great your life might be at this moment, because some of us, look, we're good. I get it. Our lives, our jobs are good. Our kids are thriving. This just, it's not just about the here and now. If we're not ready to pray about and consider not how, but if, excuse me, and consider how, not if, those that came before you have somehow advantaged or disadvantaged your present, you are, hear me, and I want you guys to hear this, you are shortchanging your future. If you're not willing to engage in this discourse, and in what you want to do, what we want to do as men sometimes, and I know I'm digging in, so stay with me, is we want to shut down and say, I'm not willing to go there. You're literally saying, I don't know what God is up to, and I don't want to know. God is still writing your family story, and he expects you to ask, Father, what are you up to? What are you after in my family line? Why do I see musicians and doctors and lawyers and pastors and and biologists and chemists in my family line? Why do I see that pattern? What's up there? God, what are you after? What are you trying to express through us? 
I'm going to cut to the chase and tell you why we see these patterns. Our family bloodline, our lineage exists, and this is going to shock you guys. They exist to glorify God. Like, whoa, that's deep theology right there. They exist to glorify God, generally speaking, by living lives of obedience to him, and specifically by demonstrating the limitless splendor of his majesty based on the talents and gifts given to me and you. God's wisdom, the way he expresses his will, is manifold or multifaceted. Ephesians 3.10 in the Amplified reads, So now through the church, the multifaceted or manifold wisdom of God in all its countless aspects might be made known, revealing the mystery to the angelic rulers of the authorities in heavenly places. The word multifaceted or manifold is used in this verse, in this verse alone, to express God's wisdom as fulfilling itself in many ways. So each of us, each of our families represents God's expression of his glory, the way he wants us to fulfill it. And he's not going to do it in one way. He's going to do it in in a multifaceted way. Multifaceted, manifold, much, variegated, marked with great variety of colors. This means every gift of unique expression, the gifts and talents that seem to flow from generation to generation, are literally clues of how the Father intends for us to express his variegated glory. And I want to pause for a second and just talk a little bit about our temperament. You guys understand, the temperament is our base emotional expression. Do you understand that your temperament is a gift from God? Do you guys understand that? Some of us have heard things, and I want to to flip the script a little bit. God wants us as men to learn how to flip the script. And what I mean by that is, you've heard stuff spoken about your family line before. You're a family that's full of rage. All you guys can do is be full of rage. But when you think about it, from the original intent, the original design, that base temperament was always a gift from God. And it was intended, when you talk about uh, rage, we talk about righteous indignation. So flip the script. If anyone in your family, if you think that you have a spirit of rage or a, a mentality or a temperament of rage, flip the script, the original intent, if you think about it, it was always intended to be righteously indignant for the things that God cares about, to get angry about things that makes him angry, to go to war for things that he cares about. Some of you have been told, you're a passive generation. You're a passive man. And some of us have accepted that. I want to tell you, God is not a passive God. You don't have to receive that. In fact, I want to pause for a second. Any man who in here who's ever received or heard or had this spoken of your family, they're just a group of men who are very passive. Raise your hand. Let me see your hand. Be bold. Raise your hand. Thank you. You don't have to receive that. Flip the script. You are a peacemaker. And sometimes peacemakers have to go to war to get to peace. Receive his truth. Flip the script. Some of you have heard, oh, they're just an arrogant generation. They're just an arrogant family. They're so well-educated. Flip the script. That is godly confidence. Some people, pride. You're just a prideful family. They're known for their pride. They're boasters. Flip the script. That original intent 
It was intended to glorify God, but it's part of how you were wired. Don't let darkness or lies twist what God intended to glorify him. I am a warrior. I was designed to do war. The stories I told you about, about my father and grandfather, the script needed to be flipped then. It's flipped now. I go to war for his name's sake. That's what I'm wired for. That passion that you hear coming out of me is authentic and it's a gift from God to do war for his name's sake. God is flipping the script in the Washington bloodline. Yes, now I've just said the word glory or some derivation thereof over six times. I get that. And it's to make my perennial point. You are here today. Your families exist to glorify God. And your family, our families, are supposed to be a multi-generational team on mission for God. A team that's constantly being pulled forward by a greater power. I'm going to get into the second part of my message, pulled forward by a greater power. Verse 3 in my opening scripture reads, Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is so vast and deep as to be unsearchable. Great in the Hebrew, gadol, large in magnitude and extent, in number and intensity, loud, very important. I love verse 3 so much because it centers us on on the main thought. Great is the Lord. Say it with me. Great is the Lord. One more time. Great is the Lord. Sheesh, Galen, what's going on? You just finished talking about his glory. Now you're talking about his greatness. I get it. I get it. I get it. My question is, do you really? Do you really get it? Gentlemen, our fruit will testify of how well we get this message. Our fruit will testify long after we're gone. I know I'm in your business, gentlemen. Stay with me. As men, we can spend so much time thinking about the great and terrible things that our forebearers did that we forget It's the Lord's great work that sustains our family line. This is so important. And I know what I'm about to say is going to feel a little bit disrespectful. And I I gave you guys the, the heads up earlier. I want you to think about this for just a second. I want you to think about every great story. We had some fantastic stories over in my discussion group. Some really great stories about heritage. Some some awesome stuff. I want you to think about every story you've heard about what your mom, your dad, your grandparents, your great-grandparents ever did. All the stories of your heritage that seem to mean so much to, to, to you and to me. With all due respect, they are absolutely meaningless if they are not superseded by, undergirded by, 
surrounded by and filled with, great is the Lord. I know that sounds rough, but just think about it for a second. Philippians 3, 7 through 9, But whatever former things were gains to me, as I thought then, these things once regarded as advancements in merit, I have come to consider as loss, absolutely worthless, for the sake of Christ and the purpose which he has given my life. But more than that, I count everything as loss compared to the priceless privilege and supreme advantage of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and of growing more deeply and thoroughly acquainted with him, a joy unequaled. For his sake I have lost everything, and I consider it all garbage, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, believing and relying on him, not having any righteousness of my own derived from my obedience to the law and its rituals, but possessing that genuine righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul is saying, whatever, whatever you think you know about me, None of that's going to be strong enough to carry my, the legacy that you've given me forward. The only thing that has legs is my faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Why is this such a crucial point? It's because the generations that fail to highlight the preeminent greatness of God in their family narrative will unwittingly introduce a slow-growing cancer into the family line. How, you ask? The great deeds of our forefathers, in and of themselves, are wholly insufficient to carry the weight that the generations will place upon them. When we celebrate what our forefathers did and don't undergird that with the power of God, it'll never last. It won't be strong enough to endure the weight of sin and the complex lives that we all live. It has to be rooted. Your narrative must be rooted in Christ. That's the only thing that will give it legs. Verse 2 reads, Every day with this new reasons will I bless you affectionately and gratefully praise you. Yes, I will praise your name forever and ever. Listen, is your family known for its financial savvy and wealth? Huh? Do you come from a family who's of super intellects? Praise God for that. Praise God. Do professional athletes run in your family line? Do you do, do, lots? <laughs> do you descend from a family of military heroes? Listen, these are all amazing and are most likely clues about how these traits were intended for God's glorification uniquely expressed by your family line. Laying these things down before the living God means remembering that we are here for a purpose, recognizing that we are all part of a larger story. Part of a larger story. Psalm 145, 3 3 through 4 in the NLT reads, Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. Let each generation tell its children of your mighty acts. Let them proclaim your power. 
Men, living and thinking generationally means we need to tell our children the true, with a capital T, the true story about how we got here, the power that sustains us, and the work that we have to carry it on. Let's say this again. If we're going to tell our children the truth, they need to hear this, how we got here, the power that sustains us, and the work we have to carry on. Gentlemen, we owe this to our children. We owe this to the generations that are coming after us. We owe it to our kids to involve them in the meta-narrative of our family story. Meta-narrative. It's an overarching story or storyline that gives context, meaning, and purpose to all of life. A meta-narrative is the big picture or all-encompassing theme that unites all the smaller themes and individual stories together. So let me ask you, men, what is the meta-narrative of your family story? Is it filled with and supported by the glory of God? Are you a champion and standard-bearer for your family story? I like the way Matthew Henry's commentary unpacks my, my uh, scripture for this message. It reads, They shall keep it up when I am gone. In an uninterrupted succession, one generation shall praise thy works to another. The generation that is going off shall tell them to that which is rising up, shall tell what they have seen in their days and what they have heard from their fathers. They shall fully and particularly declare thy mighty acts. And the generation that is rising up shall follow the example of that which is going off, so that the death of God's worshipers shall be no diminution of his worshipers, for a new generation shall rise up in their room to carry on that good work, more or less to the end of time when it shall be left to that world to do it in which there is no succession of generations. The pattern is, how well are we telling the story over and over and over again? Are our children, are the people around us, are they worshipers because of what they see in us? Are they worshipers? Do people fall upon their knees when, and, and experience the presence of God because of how we're living and how we're exuding that? That is the only thing that will sustain the generations that are coming. That's our number one job. And here's the funny thing. When we, with great intentionality and wisdom, and transparency. And I, and I say this intentionally, guys. When you share your story with your family, it takes wisdom. You can't tell them everything. Listen, if I had told my kids about my granddad when they were little, they would need therapy for the rest of their lives. You need wisdom. You need to know and ask the Holy Spirit to tell you, how do I engage my children in the narrative season by season as our children are growing? And when we engage our children in that meta-narrative, sometimes they will surprise you. They will, in many ways, become a source of strength and encouragement for you. 
sometimes in your darkest hour, sometimes in your weakest moments. I want to pick back up the story that I started with when I was acting like an idiot in the terrible Target incident, part two in the closing. So we drove home. It was a very quiet ride home, as you might imagine. And I felt compelled to be very transparent with Christian and Sheridan. So we get home, we sit on the couch, and I'm sitting on the floor, and I just started to tell them, guys, Dad needs some help. Dad's not doing okay. And you know what? Dad is realizing that there's a wave of something going on in my life, and I'm just like my dad, even though I've never met him. Simone's sitting there, and she's looking, and she says, Christian and Sheridan, I want, let's pray for Daddy. So I'm sitting down on the floor, and I can still, to this day, hear their soft, sweet voices. They lay hands on my shoulders and on my head, and they start praying these prayers that I, I didn't know where they were coming from. They were so powerful. They are clearly coming from the heart of God. And I'm sitting there weeping and crying. But you know what? That humility, their God grew larger. God grew bigger in Christian and Sheridan's lives, in my brokenness, in my humility. I want to encourage you as men, don't hide. When you know that you can sense there's, a, there's turmoil going on, and I'm not, look, there's all kinds of ways to get help. But to share it with trusted friends and family people that you know you can trust and who can handle that, that kind of weight, share it with them. Share it with your brothers. Don't hold on to that. Christian and Sheridan have seen and experienced a lot of great and terrible examples of what it means to be parented well. But their greatest blessing, the thing that will enable them to carry on the work God has started in me and Simone, is this. They have intimately observed two things at the same time, and I want you guys to get this. The weakness of man and the greatness of God. They have observed and experienced both in deep humility and transparency. When I used to mess up and blow it, I would repent and cry out, and, and tell them, Dad has missed the mark again. I am so sorry. I have to do better. With God's help, I will do better. And each time that I would make strides and become a better father and a better husband, their God was getting bigger. And now they exceed and excel me ten times over. And they're only 21 and 22 years old. They will, in Jesus' name, carry on what the Father has started in me and my wife. Amen. Friends, we are part of a larger story. Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says it best, and we, we're familiar with this. We are all part of Jesus Christ's reconciliation project. He is reconciling all of creation to himself. 
including our family lines. He is making right which once was wrong. And all we have to do as men is say, Father, show me what you require of me. What work do you expect of this family and what role must I play? Now, as I move towards my close, you know, one of the things I used to get really frustrated about is I used to be very upset that my convictions that I have for God weren't shared by my uh, grandfather and my father. I used to really get bitter and really frustrated about that. And God has trained me to let that go. But there's a poem that I want to read to you guys. It's by C.T. Studd. Only one life will soon be passed. This is what I had hoped that my uh, grandfather and my father, this is the conviction that I wished that they had had, that I have fully given myself over to. So let's read it. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Gentlemen, if you want to say the last part of these, uh, uh, each time I get to only one life, if you feel compelled to say that, you can say it with me. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep, and joy or sorrow thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whatever the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love for, with fervor burn. And from the world now let me turn. Living for thee and thee alone. Bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call... I know I'll say twas worth it all. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I can say this over and over and over again. Men, we need to say this over and over and over again. Let this seep into your soul. This sustains the generations. This is the power that sustains the generations long after we're gone. We must let go of what we think about ourselves 
and look into the eyes of our great, 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 great grandchildren. One day I pray that my great, great, great grandchildren, listen to this, long after this body is gone, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has burned out for thee. I want to close with prayer. Father, I realize this is not a Disneyland fun message. I realize this It's meaty and it's heavy. But Lord, I pray, I pray that we, that you would stir a fire in our hearts where we feel apathy. There are men in this room right now who are struggling with apathy. We've lost our ability to engage, to be led by you, to trust you. The things that look dead in our family the things that look like they're never going to change. You're saying, son, I'm saying you are that agent of change. I have chosen you at your age and your season of life right now to stir up your faith and press in. Seek my will. Seek my face. Receive my charge. And I will give you the power and the grace to do it. Father, I pray that we will carry this kind of message home. We will feast on it for the rest of our lives and we will never be the same. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.